Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Welcome to all of you here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are joining us online, and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, South Calgary, and Crowfoot in Northwest Calgary. We're in a series in which we're exploring what it is that Christians believe, and presently we're examining what the Bible teaches about our enemy, Satan, and how we can live in victory over him. In John 18, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. He was saying that this world is not the way that God intended it to be when he first created it. Life is a spiritual battlefield. And there are unseen forces at work that do not want us to make good choices. That do not want us to follow the ways of Christ. Now if you're skeptical about that, that that battle exists, then let me remind you that you experience that battle every time you're forced to make a choice between greed or generosity, or between lust or purity. You are faced with making a choice, and you're in that battle every time you have to make a choice between fear or faith, between dishonesty or integrity, between selfishness or serving others. The spiritual battle that we are in is real. And the passage of Scripture we're looking at today not only speaks about this battle, but also spells out how we can win the battle through Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And then I'm going to ask you to stand with me and join me in reading a portion of this chapter together. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we find such confidence in knowing that the one who is in us is so much greater than the one who is in the world. As we continue to look at how we can live in victory over the deception and the um, deceit that the enemy would throw our way. I ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would focus our minds, and Lord, you would give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now in the passage that we just read together, we're given a number of keys of how we can live in victory over our enemy. And the first key is we need to know 
our enemy. We must not give undue attention to Satan or have an unhealthy obsession with him, but we need to know him well enough to be familiar with the strategies that he uses to deceive and to defeat us. 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us that we live in two dimensions, the visible world and the invisible world. And even though Satan is a spirit being and therefore predominantly unseen, he is very real and very active in our world today. Here in our text in verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is the major struggles and challenges that we face in life are not so much with other human beings, but with the dark and demonic forces of evil who are in opposition to everything that God stands for, are wreaking havoc in our world, either directly themselves or through other people. John 10.10 says the thief referring to Satan comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. His agenda is to steal our joy, to kill our hope, and to destroy our very lives. Now the reality is, you and I are no match for Satan. But the good news is, as Christ followers, we are one with Christ. And Jesus is far greater than Satan and his demons. In fact, there's not even a comparison Jesus is the name above all names. He is the king above all kings. He is the Lord above all lords. Without Christ, we are helpless against Satan. But with Christ, we are more than conquerors. Amen? Amen. So the first key is to know our enemy. The second is to know our position and authority in Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about this last time. This is so critical. But verse 1, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Our strength comes from being in the Lord. Our authority comes from being in the Lord. It comes from knowing and claiming who we are in Christ. Through the finished work of Christ, Satan is a defeated foe. He has lost his authority and his power. The name of Jesus will always defeat him. And those of you who have dealt with individuals who um, are struggling with demonic oppression, you know the power of the name of Jesus in those situations. Now in this message, we move on to a third key to walking in victory. And that is putting on the armor of God. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. When Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, he was in prison awaiting trial. And he was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. Now, undoubtedly, as he was writing, the centurion's armor brought to mind a picture that he decided to use to describe to his readers how to live in victory over the attacks and the deception 
of the enemy. In the same way that a soldier would put on pieces of armor, so we are to clothe ourselves with spiritual armor. Now, Satan loves to deceive us. He loves to discourage us and to distract us. And as you'll see in this message, the first three pieces of armor are designed to defend against those particular attacks. The first piece of armor that Paul describes is the belt of truth, which is designed to defend against the deception of Satan. Look at verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. One of the primary ways that Satan attempts to defeat us is by deceiving us, by getting us to believe a lie or to rationalize away the truth. We see this all the way through Scripture. In Genesis 3, verse 1, Satan approached Eve, and he asked her, did God really say? It was just a simple question. But his purpose was to create doubt and confusion in the mind of Eve, to weaken her resolve to obey God fully, to begin to question God and the goodness of God, the intentions of God. Now, Satan continues to use various means like this to cause us to question the truth of God's word, the character of God. And he will do it in such subtle ways. Did God really say that? Are you sure that you're interpreting that particular scripture correctly? Does God really say that sex is wrong? Well, no, of course, we answer. God invented sex. It was his idea. Well, then, he'll whisper, what's wrong with sleeping with your boyfriend? You see, Satan's purpose is to weaken our convictions by raising doubts in our mind about whether there is a God, about whether Jesus is the divine Son of God, or in the words of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, whether the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. If he can get you to doubt the truth of the Bible just enough not to open it, if he can get you to question God just enough to not take him and his promises and his commands too seriously. If he can get you to question the divinity of Jesus just enough to keep him at a safe, comfortable distance. If he can get you to question the importance and the relevance of the church just enough to keep you away from the encouragement and the accountability and the prayers of other Christians. In short, if he can influence you to only be partially surrendered to the Lord, then he has you exactly where he wants all of us to be, and that is a place of spiritual impotence. A place where we may have a form of godliness, but we lack the power thereof. We're just going through the motions. We are in that place that Jesus referred to when he talked to the church of Ephesus. He said, you're neither cold or hot. Satan loves it when we're in that lukewarm state. And he's really happy if we just stay there. The Apostle Paul says here, the way to discern Satan's deception is to put on the belt of truth. Now, a Roman centurion's belt was a wide, sturdy belt, like the one that you see weightlifters 
put on today or, or wrestlers. It was the most essential piece of armor because it served two critical purposes. First of all, it supported and protected his torso. But furthermore, the belt served as the anchor for most of the other protective equipment, including the breastplate, the sword, and his shield. The Roman centurion's belt would have served a similar purpose to a police officer's duty belt today. A police officer's belt holds all of the defensive and offensive equipment together, including his gun, his taser, his ammo, his radio, flashlight, baton, and several sets of handcuffs. Well, in the same way that a police officer's equipment would be inaccessible without his belt, so our spiritual armor is inaccessible or it's vulnerable to the deception of Satan without the belt of truth being on because the belt holds it all together. And so it's critical to put on the belt of truth every morning. When you put on the belt of truth, you are affirming that Jesus is the truth, that the Bible is the truth, and that, in the, that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. When you put on the belt of truth every morning, you are also committing yourself to aligning your life to the truth, to living an authentic Christian life, a life of integrity. Jesus describes Satan this way in John chapter 8. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now I want you to notice that Jesus says that lying is the native language of Satan. He's the father of lies. When we lie, we begin to reflect the devil's character. And we give him a foothold in our lives. Now sometimes we lie to impress other people. We exaggerate stories, numbers, statistics. We puff up our resumes. We live way beyond our means. Carry a huge debt load, all for the purpose of trying to look more impressive in the eyes of others. All of it is a form of falsehood and deceit. Sometimes we lie to avoid taking ownership for our failures and sins. Like the little boy who was caught lying by his Sunday school teacher. She asked him why he lied. And the little guy decided that maybe the best answer was just to quote scripture. He said, a lie is an abomination to the Lord, but a very present help in times of trouble. Adam told this kind of lie in the garden. When he sinned, he took it like a man and blamed his wife. She made me do it. But interestingly, Eve turned around and said, the devil made me do it. We like to pass on the blame, another form of falsehood. Sometimes we lie to hurt someone, to get back at someone. Because of envy or resentment towards someone, we deliberately misrepresent them. We undermine their reputation by slandering them or passing on a rumor about them. 
few years ago, a young woman who was a student at the University of California, she committed suicide by leaping to her death from a dormitory window. Police searched for a reason why a bright young woman with her entire future ahead of her would take her own life. After scouring her dorm room, the only clue they discovered was a pad of paper on her desk on which was written in her own handwriting these words, just two words. They said. Whatever it was that they said made a young woman not want to live another day. Friends, Satan's agenda is to destroy us, to destroy relationships. And the gossiper, the slanderer, is the devil's delivery person. And yes, sometimes I'm that delivery person. And if you're honest, sometimes it's you. And it comes out of our own insecurity. It comes out of our own envy, our own hurt, our own pride, our own resentment. Now the Bible is explicit that God hates lying in any form because he himself is the truth. Proverbs 12, says, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. God hates lying and falsehood because it destroys reputations, relationships, marriages, families, friendships, communities, entire nations. He hates lying because it leads to inner turmoil. Psalm 145 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. If the Lord is near to those who live truth-filled lives, then if the Lord seems distant in your life, could it be that the issue is a lack of integrity in your life, that there's falsehood in your life. All that to say, we become susceptible to much inner turmoil and the attacks of the enemy when we fail to live our lives with integrity. And so when you put on the belt of truth every morning, you are saying, Lord, today, I'm surrendering myself anew to you with the Spirit's help. I'm going to live in alignment with the truth of your holy word. I'm going to do what is right and pleasing in your sight. I'm going to be real and not hide behind a facade. I'm going to be honest in my communication. I will not justify and rationalize sin. To live otherwise, folks, is to invite our enemy Satan to gain a foothold and wreak havoc in our lives. The second piece of armor that Paul refers to here is the breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate of righteousness is designed to defend one of others Satan's strategies, and that is his discouragement. And look at verse 14. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. No soldier would go into battle without his breastplate, which was a tough, sleeveless piece of armor that covered his full torso. Its purpose 
like a police officer's bulletproof vest, was to protect the soldier's most vital organs, particularly his heart. Now, in ancient Jewish thinking, the heart represented the will of a person, whereas the abdomen represented a person's emotions and feelings. So at issue here is our will and our emotions, which, of course, are two areas that Satan seeks to discourage us in. In Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan's referred to as the accuser of our brothers and sisters. First, he seeks to seduce us to sin, to get us to a place where we're smiling at sin, even laughing at sin, rather than mourning over it, to rationalize it away rather than confessing it to the Lord. And then when we give in to sin, he uses it to make us feel unworthy, to make us feel unacceptable before God. Whispering sinister thoughts like, and you say that you're a Christian? Look at what you're thinking about. That is why we must daily put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness or holy living defeats Satan absolutely because righteousness is everything that Satan is not. And so when I put on the breastplate of righteousness each morning, I am affirming and committing to the following two truths. First of all, in Christ, I am righteous before God. As I pointed out last time, you can't make yourself righteous. This is a work that only God can do for you. It is a gift from God. When you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, a great exchange takes place. Your sin and unrighteousness is placed on Jesus' account. And Christ's perfect righteousness is placed on your account. Not only cleansing you from sin, but making you spiritually alive and righteous in the sight of God. In that moment, you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. You are one with Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin, referring to Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because we are one with Christ, God no longer sees our impurity. He sees Christ's purity. That is our identity and our position in Jesus Christ. And so when the enemy tries to discourage me, by saying I'm unrighteous, that I'm unacceptable to God, I put on the breastplate of righteousness, reminding myself that I am righteous, not because I live perfectly in this life, but because I am in Christ, and he is perfect and righteous and acceptable in the sight of God. Romans 8.1 says it best, there is now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now secondly, when I put on the breastplate of righteousness every morning, 
I am saying, Lord, with your help, I intend to live a God-pleasing life today. You see, the Christian life is, is not just a change in our identity and our position before God, as important as that is. But if our decision is genuine, it also involves a change in the way we live our life. Make no mistake, and people need to understand this. The person who wants to put his trust in Jesus in order to get to heaven, but has no intention or a heart desire to obey Jesus and to follow him as Lord and King, he will not receive eternal life. He will not get what he asks for. He will not receive the Holy Spirit. He's playing games. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, Paul says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, to live a pure, holy life means to devote our lives to one thing, to have only one pursuit in life, and that is the pursuit of God and his calling on our lives. Now, again, as I've said before, when it comes to living a holy life, God looks primarily at our heart. And it's not the perfection of our lives. It's the direction of our heart that he is most concerned with. That the direction of our heart, the passion of our heart, is first and foremost to pursue God. When pride or unconfessed sin or other pursuits take center stage in our lives we will experience a breakdown in our friendship with God and also in our relationship with others. And we will ultimately lose the joy and the peace that we have as well. Because one sin rarely is the issue. It's like dominoes. It begins to lead to other sins. For example, the Bible says in Psalm 51 that after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, that's sin number one. Well, now he needed to cover it up. Which led to him to basically orchestrating the death of her husband, Uriah. Sin number two. And then, of course, he tried to cover it all up. And the Bible tells us that, consequently, he had no joy. In fact, he was miserable. He was unpleasant to be around. Now it was affecting his relationships. His fellowship with God was in the tank. He was undoubtedly being attacked by Satan to the point that he was losing sleep. That he couldn't eat. He described what he was going through as a crushing of the bones. That's what it felt like. His body was deteriorating from the stress associated with the guilt and the accusations of the enemy. Well, then Nathan the prophet came along and confronted David about his sin. And David stops pretending. He stops trying to cover things up. He humbles himself, he acknowledges his sin, and he repents. And not only is his fellowship with God restored, but so is his joy. I recently read the story of a woman who committed adultery. She was devastated by her sin. God convicted her of her sin. She repented of it. And then she went and confessed it to her husband. 
Her husband was a godly man, a good man. Now, news like this is, is never easy to receive. And in giving this illustration, no way do I want to minimize the havoc and the pain that comes when a spouse is unfaithful. But you see, what happened was this man refused to extend the forgiveness to his wife that he himself had received from his Lord. And then like dominoes, the one sin led to many other sins, including bitterness and anger. And soon this once gentle godly man began to seethe with bitterness and began to verbally and then even physically abuse his wife. You see, by allowing pride and unforgiveness and anger to control him, he gave the enemy a foothold in his life, a base of operation. Because he didn't stand firm in the Lord. And he decided to go his own way rather than God's way on this issue. Friend, remember this. The best defense that you can have against the accusations of the devil, if you want to shut him up, then love the Lord with all your heart and live a God-pleasing life. And then finally, our third defense against Satan are the shoes of peace, which are designed to defend against the distractions of Satan. Again, look at verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, you know, footwear is very important, particularly having the appropriate footwear for whatever it is you're doing. Because even though an athlete wearing wrong footwear might lose a match or perhaps roll an ankle, a soldier with improper footwear could lose his life. While the Apostle Paul indicates here that a Christian's spiritual footwear is equally important in defending against the schemes of the devil. Now, a Roman soldier wore footwear, the soles of which were thickly studied, studded with nails. Those little nails were there to make the grip better, in the same way that cleats are there in a soccer shoe or in a golf shoe, help provide a better grip. Those cleats were absolutely critical because a soldier would not be able to hold his ground if he stumbled or if he fell. Now, the imagery of the footwear here says two things to us. First, when I put on the shoes of peace, I'm saying, Lord, I'm at peace with you and also with other people. Notice he calls the shoes the gospel of peace. If my life isn't right with God, or if I'm in conflict with someone else, I've effectively removed the cleats from my shoes. I'm going to be unstable in all of my ways. I'm going to slip and slide. I'm going to get run over by Satan. And make no mistake, Satan desperately wants to distract us from keeping our relationship fresh and healthy. Furthermore, when I put on the shoes of peace, I'm saying to the Lord each morning, Lord, here I am. 
My hands are open and available to do the assignments that you have for me. Notice Paul uses the word readiness to describe the shoes. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do what it is you want me to do. And church, make, church, make no mistake. Satan desperately wants to distract us in these two particular areas. He wants to distract us from keeping our relationship with God fresh and healthy. And he wants to distract us from being sensitive to God's promptings and his assignments in our lives. Just wants to keep us busy with all kinds of busy stuff. So let me unpack these two areas a little bit. When I put on the shoes of peace each morning, I'm affirming that I am at peace with God. God is the source of peace. He is the giver of peace. And therefore, I cannot share the gospel of peace until I have found the peace of God myself. Jesus came to make that possible. Colossians 1.19 says, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. When we put our trust in Christ, God invades our lives and he gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than of stone. He changes our character. He begins to live his life through us. The person who knows the peace of God no longer sees herself as the center of the universe. She's not touchy. She's not sensitive or on the defensive. She does not always have to be right or to be seen as the best or the most beautiful. She has totally surrendered her life to her new king, Jesus. Whereas before her mission was to bring glory to herself. Now her consuming passion is to bring glory to God in all that she does. Those who are at peace with God have an eternal perspective on everything. They regularly ask, in light of eternity, which pathway should I take? In light of eternity, what decision should I make in this particular instance? In light of eternity, how should I deal with this conflict? In short, God will change your attitude, your perspective, everything in a good way by living his life, his character, his peace and joy through you. But furthermore, when I put on the shoes of peace every morning, I'm not only saying, Lord, I'm at peace with you, but by your grace, I am committed to being at peace with others. And, that, and if that involves approaching someone and apologizing or just making sure that everything's right, then so be it. You know, Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We are to take action and do what we can do to make amends. If a person laughs at us, tells us to take a hike, we're not responsible for how they respond to our efforts to make peace. 
we're only responsible to do our part to try to be at peace with everyone. And then thirdly, when I put on the shoes of peace every morning, I'm saying, Lord, please use me as your instrument of peace today. In his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And the word that he uses there for peace is the, has the same essential meaning as the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom does not mean the absence of conflict or the ceasing of hostilities, which is the popular notion that we have today of peace. You know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Let's just leave each other alone. Shalom isn't simply leaving each other alone. No. It is wishing and actively seeking God's best for the other person. That which is good and positive and healing. When a Jew says shalom, he's not just saying, I hope you don't have any problems. He's saying, I hope you have prosperity and a good life. Shalom is an active word. It implies taking action. It implies taking initiative. It implies taking risks. Jesus is calling us to do more than just keep the peace. He's actually calling us to be makers of peace, to bring a little bit of heaven to earth. He's calling us to get our hands dirty, to allow our lives to wander into the messy parts of life a little bit in bringing about shalom in our world. And so, for example, the peacemaker doesn't just encourage a couple to stop fighting. You know, go to your room, leave each other alone, and then disappears. No. He becomes willing to help them get to the bottom of their problem and to start on the right track or direct them to someone who can help them. A peacemaker doesn't just provide food and clothes for the hungry. No, she is willing to respect their dignity by showing them how to make a living and by providing the support, perhaps microloans, whatever is needed to make it a reality. And then fourthly, when we put on the shoes of peace every morning, we're saying, Lord, I'm available to be used by you to introduce people to Jesus. John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse in the scriptures, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We've said that and so often, we've read it so often, I wonder if it's lost its impact in our lives. Because of his great love for us, God through Christ made a way possible for us to be reconciled with our Heavenly Father and to be at peace with God. What an incredible gift. And church, we know that we are children of God when we seek to do our part, whatever that part may be, in helping people to be reconciled with God. There is no greater cause to give our lives to. It was the supreme reason that Jesus came to this planet. Everywhere that he went, he spent time with people. People from all walks of life, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, delivering those that were in bondage. 
There is no greater mark of a peacemaker. When we put on the shoes of peace, when we provide shelter, clothes and food for those facing crisis, when we walk across the street and bless them with a pie that we made, or when we invite them into our home for a meal or an evening of fun, we're putting on the shoes of peace. When we, we put on the shoes of peace when we regularly listen for the promptings of the Spirit and make ourselves available to listen to someone who's hurting, make ourselves available to serve someone, make ourselves available to invite someone or to provide help for someone. We put on the shoes of peace when we behave as Jesus would behave in a given situation, when we grieve over what Jesus would grieve over, when his mission is our mission. Now, we won't reflect the character of our Lord perfectly, of course. But there will be a family resemblance. You know, people ask me why I'm so passionate about introducing people to Jesus. And I, of course, will say a number of things related to that question, perhaps the most basic being that we've been called to do that. But often I'll tell them about the time I, asked, I was asked to do the funeral of a newly married young man who was a specimen of health and fitness and yet died suddenly early one morning while he was out for a run. And I'll never forget how his widow sobbed uncontrollably and how she would grab my hand and she would ask me again and again, several times over the several days we were together, is he okay? Tell me. Tell me, is he okay? Is he in heaven? Tell me. She knew a lot about him, but she didn't know where he stood with God. And she was inconsolable. I'll tell them of the times that I've stood at the side of the bed of a person with only moments to live surrounded by loved ones and friends and how I could sense the, the uncertainty and the despair and the hopelessness in that room because no one knew where this person was at with God and I found myself grieving in my spirit because it doesn't have to end this way Friends, because Jesus lives, darkness, hopelessness, and despair doesn't need to win in the end. And the devil won't win, folks, if God's people will daily put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of peace. You know, in Philippians 1.21, the Apostle Paul said, for me to live, for me to live, is Christ. I'm wondering, for you to live is what? Is it God and God alone? Or is it God and something else? Or is it just something else? Some counterfeit God that you're pursuing? And that if you're honest, 
you'll have to admit it won't mean a hill of beans in the end. You know, I'm convinced that Satan's most successful in his attacks against us when outside of our work responsibilities, we're just sitting around vegetating, giving our lives to lesser things, earthly temporary things, rather than investing in those, rather than investing those precious hours, either directly or behind the scenes, in people who matter to God. Jesus said, true joy, fulfillment, freedom and victory over the enemy comes not to those who have divided passions. It does not come to those who worship at the altar of a myriad of counterfeit gods, but rather to those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and his mission. I can't think of a greater cause to give my life to than to daily put on the shoes of peace and simply to be available to the Holy Spirit, to be used by God in some small way or some significant way in the chain link of events that God will use to draw people to himself. May it be so in all of our lives, to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that so desperately needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? I'm just going to ask that you'd open your hands before the Lord again. And just ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me today? And whatever you've heard him to say, Respond back to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the reminder that we are in a spiritual battlefield. Oh Lord, for those of us who are skeptical of all of that, I pray, oh God, that you would show us through your word that this is a reality. There's a war, a spiritual war going on seeking to keep our neighbors, our friends who are far from you, 
to keep them there. There are forces at work, Lord, that are trying to deceive us, to bring us to a place of just lukewarmness, of, of just going through the motions. Thank you for providing for us not only the assurance of our salvation, but Lord, the armor to defend against the deception, the discouragement, and the distractions of the enemy. We just commit ourselves anew to you, O oh God. thank you again for being the one who is so much greater than he that is in the world. We pray this in your precious name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.